It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. So I've been going through a, a new series. This is my third installment in it. Uh, it's called Heroic Tales. And so each one of these, I sort of focus on one biblical character, but it's not like a real study in that biblical character as much as just using them as a template or as a picture and some attribute of their life or function in their life and how that applies to us uh, today because the usability of Scripture is just uh, amazing in how someone's life from thousands of years ago can actually impact and create framework for ours today. And I, I just love that about how Scripture functions and works. The, the name of this one is Surrounded. And uh, our case study, if you will, even though it's not really a case study, I don't even know if that's the right uh, term for it, is Elisha the Tishbite. Isn't that a funny name? Uh, I put in Tishbite just because uh, it just sort of plays into uh, this a little. But that's his official name. Uh, he's also Elisha, son of Shaphat. Is that right, Nathan? Son of Shaphat. Uh, and so his dad's name is likely Shaphat, uh, who, which means judge. And so son of the judge. Uh, but then no one really knows exactly why he's called Elisha the Tishbite. Some people say maybe it's because he's from Tishti. Uh, and, but we don't know, except for the word in light of what I'm going to talk to you about today is very intriguing uh, of how that plays in. I'm going to call him the unshakable man. He's a fascinating character uh, in so many ways, and we'll go through him. Nathan will bring him up. I'll bring him up at different times. Uh, he's a symbol of the church. He's a second because you have Elijah, and then the mantle of Elijah falls to the one who witnesses him ascending. Does that sound like something familiar in the New Testament? In other words, one is going to ascend into the heavenlies, and then another is going to witness the ascension, and then that mantle is going to fall. Okay, so that sounds like Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost. And so what we have is a parallel. And it's interesting because what you see is that Elisha is, in most of our minds, a lesser prophet than Elijah. I mean, Elijah is the is the former, is the grand uh, prophet of all time, isn't he? And yet Elisha performs double the miracles, and which is exactly what he's asking for even at the parting. It's like he asks a very bold thing. I want double the Holy Spirit that you have, Elijah. And Elijah's even taken aback with the request. And so this man is quite the <clears throat> powerhouse. He really is. He's quite a picture. Uh, and... So I'm going to just refer to him as the unshakable man. And this is seen over and over and again. He's just nonplussed. He's unmoved uh, by the circumstances around him. We are. Our natural propensity is to be very moved and to be very shaken. Uh, as we move through life, the enemy uses certain tactics to jar us and to shock our soul. And I'm very intrigued by this character because in all circumstances, he just sort of just stands there and sort of like, what's the big deal? Don't you know that we serve God Almighty? And it's a pretty amazing picture that he shows. So you're going to notice I have Elisha the Tishbite up there, and then I'm going to uh, put 
quotes around uh, that totally surrounded. Actually, you know the name of this message is supposed to be totally surrounded, so I'm going to correct that moving forward. So on the podcast, it will be called Totally Surrounded. Uh, because I wanted the totally uh, added uh, it. Sounded like I'm back in the 80s. Totally. Uh, but totally surrounded is sort of what his name means. It, Elisha the totally surrounded. The, the name Tishbite or the word Tishbite is like this idea of being held captive, being uh, you know, walled in. And so it's like Elisha the totally surrounded. And yet what's fascinating about that is when you recognize what that can mean in his life when it unfolds. So I'm calling him the unshakable man. When you're surrounded by enemy hordes that are all desiring to kill you, how do you feel? I mean, what's your response? Elisha's response is so otherworldly that we don't even have a grid for it. We don't even have a category for it. It's just impossible. It's the impossible attitude. Second Kings 6 so the king of Syria is upset. That's a story in and of itself. Uh, and sends his troops, a rather, rather large army, and it surrounds the city uh, where Elisha is. He's after Elisha. He, the king of Syria, sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant uh, of the man of God, a man named Gehazi, arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered. Okay, so I don't know what your answer is in this situation, but you are surrounded. He is, remember, Elisha is the totally surrounded. And he is totally surrounded. He's totally surrounded by enemy troops, right? Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. It's an attitude. Now here's what I want you to recognize. Even in your darkest moments when you're totally surrounded, you're actually, you need to decide which you're focusing on, what's totally surrounding you. When you get into an armor, you get into a strong tower, you are totally surrounded. And so you need to recognize, even though you are totally surrounded, do you know what is actually supposed to be totally surrounding you? And that's what Elisha sees. He sees, well, he, his next line is going to be, open my servant's eyes that he may see. And his servant's eyes are open and they see that they're totally surrounded with horses and chariots of fire. And so, though our natural man may perceive that we're in danger, may perceive the impossible obstacles, it's like God needs to open our eyes so that we can see that we are totally surrounded, but with the power of God. And so it's an attitude shift. If you're focused on the Syrians, then you're going to give way to fear, fretting, and anxiety. If you see with spiritual eyes then you actually become the unshakable man. Why would you fear if you were surrounded by God? And God holds this enemy in contempt. They're nothing to him. He's all the Almighty. So here's our word, intrepid. Intrepid literally means not trembling or shaking with fear. Hence, fearless, bold, brave, undaunted as an intrepid soldier. So, the concept is an intrepid soldier is one that even when everyone else around begins to turn and run, they stand strong. Even when bullets are flying, they don't cower. Now that's opposite the way humanity actually works. Humanity cowers or flinches by nature. If someone comes up to you, and have you ever had it where someone has a rubber band, 
and they hold it up at you and you, you, you immediately flinch. It's just a rubber band, <laughs> let alone a gun. In other words, this is not going to kill you, and yet you flinch. And if someone acts like they're shooting it at you but just have it around their finger, have you ever seen someone do that? They shoot it and it just it doesn't go anywhere because it's still on their finger. They're trying to fool you. You flinch, and then they make some statement about, you flinched because that's what we do as humans, right? We flinch, and yet this is unflinchable. This is a certain quality of the soul that needs to be cultivated by the Holy Spirit, where we don't budge when the enemy barks. We don't run when he snarls. We actually stand firm knowing that our God is God. Unshakable. So I'm going to give a word for it in the New Testament, and this is going to be an unusual word for you in your mind. And we'll unpack this in the semester. For those of you that are students uh, this semester, we'll go into this at a, at a deeper level. But the word is patience. Now, when I say the word patience, you do not think of unshakable. You think of you know, standing in front of the microwave and not complaining when the popcorn is taking so long to pop, and that's patience. And in just enduring the passage of time uh, with grace is a very low-level version of patience, okay? That's, yeah, we could call it that, but that's not really what the biblical concept is trying to build in our understanding. So when I link those two words, unshakable and patience, together, it should start to unpack your understanding in the New Testament of the idea of patience. So when God says that patience is a virtue, or that it's, it says... Uh, that uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. This, this, when you recognize that this comes with the package of the Holy Spirit, it actually should get you excited. It's like, you, for so far you're listening to all that I'm saying. It's like, yeah, right. Uh-huh. Mm, yeah. How do you get that? Well, it's via the Holy Spirit. The same way you get salvation. How are you, how are you getting salvation? It's by faith. Well, how do you get love? By faith. How do you get joy by faith? You didn't think you were supposed to whip these things up, did you? You're supposed to save yourself. You're supposed to be this you know, depository of incredible love that springs forth from you. You're the passageway. You're the flow-through channel. God comes in and goes out. And this is a quality of God. He doesn't flinch. He is unshakable. And so tying this, you guys went through a message called immovable, the other day, if you're a student here. Same construct here. In other words, we're building on an idea that the Holy Spirit desires to move in and establish firm footing. So I'm going to give you the amazing manly recipe for patience, and you ladies can take advantage of this too, even though it's a very manly uh, recipe. Tensile strength plus resilience equals patience. You're like, I, know, I don't know what any of those things are now. And I thought I knew what patience was. Now I throw that out the window. So now I have this recipe I don't know what to do with. Tensile strength plus resilience equals patience. So let's go through these real quick. Because we have sessions during the semester. We'll go through this. Words, we're going to get more granular even in our training here in the semester to help you understand the functionality of the soul, what the Holy Spirit desires to do inside of you. So tensile strength, this is how you measure springs. This is how you measure rope. It's, it's when something is tested, like a spring on a trampoline, okay? It has to be able to endure great strain and stress when a big heavy guy gets up there and starts jumping on it. And so a tensile rating is how much weight it can handle, how much strain it can handle for how long. And so that's going to be its tensile strength rating. So 
we think muscular strength, but tensile strength is like strength in a, in a human. It would be the strength of their soul. How much difficulty can they go through before they snap? And so this is a very important quality that oftentimes is not cultivated in us as Christians anymore. We don't even think about it. We don't even know about it. And as a result, we snap very easily. We go into a difficulty and just fall to pieces. So tensile strength, how much stress, difficulty, and hardship the human soul can handle before giving way and breaking. And then resilience. When I was young, I had uh, Stretch Armstrong. Uh, I think he's been re-released into the toy market. But Stretch Armstrong was like filled with some kind of goo. And he was, I don't know what he was made of, some kind of rubberish substance. And so my brother could take one of Stretch Armstrong's arms, I could take the other, and we could walk across the entire room from each other, and Stretch Armstrong would stretch. And then when you let go of Stretch Armstrong, he would just come back into shape. That's resilience, okay? In other words, well, how long the human soul takes to return to its former size and shape after enduring acute stress, difficulty, and hardship. When you go through difficulty, it oftentimes causes you to just sort of lay there with one arm on this side of the room and one arm on that side of the room, and you're not functional the way you were before the strain happened. You're not, you're not actually working right because the soul is bruised, is broken down, and so you haven't returned to a place of strength. So if someone were to come up to me and punch me in the nose and I were to go flying against the back wall you know, with Tweety Birds over my head and stars and everything... And then you go, whoa, he's going to be down for a while. But then you see me pop up and immediately get back into position like this with a smile on my face. You're like, whoa, what was that? That's resilience. Resilience, the, the, the clock starts ticking. The moment the strain or the stress happens, how quickly can your soul recover its composure? How quickly can you regain position to actually address the needs of life? The devil wants to knock you out of the game. And so many of us can get hit, and we're down for the count for a week or two. And that's pretty good for some. Some people are gone for the rest of their life, and they never recover because of something that happened when they were young. So when you add tensile strength and resilience, you're getting a very powerful thing known as patience. In other words, patience is able to go through tremendous difficulty, return to shape, and be strong. Okay? So in other words, when you start hearing about that, you're like, I'd like a little of that. Well, you have a little of that in Jesus Christ. In fact, you have a lot of it. So you have as much as you need to be able to function in this life. Patience, uh, the Greek word, hupomeno, the calm and courage of the Christian soul. To remain unmoved, to not recede or flee, to stand fast amidst the most severe misfortunes. It says the most most, just in case you were looking closely. The most most severe misfortunes and trials and to hold fast one's faith in Christ to the end to endure and bear ill treatments bravely and calmly. So, yeah, I think all of us want a little of that, a lot of that. So how do we get it? How do we get patience? You know what the Bible actually tells us exactly how to get it? And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience. <laughs> Some of us are like, oh, well, I don't know that I want it that much. Tribulation builds this inside of you. So what's tribulation? You know, see, we have a negative concept of tribulation, but tribulation is a farming term back in the day. It'd be agrarian culture would understand tribulation because a tribular was a threshing instrument. And so you'd take wheat and beat the wheat, and it would separate chaff from the, the grain, 
and then the wind would blow it away. You'd have a fan, and you'd blow away the, the chaff and burn it in, in the fire, and you'd have the pure wheat. And so a tribular was simply removing unnecessary to gain the pure. And so I know most of us don't want to be hit with a tribular. It doesn't sound very fun. But tribulation works a greater strength in you. When you go through difficulty, when you go through trials of many kinds, you're going to find that they are going to firm you up. You are going to be stout of soul. So when those difficulties come, don't shoo them away. Embrace them. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Yeah, see, there it is. That's what, that's what he's saying to us in James. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces something. What does it produce? It produces hupomeno. It produces patience. So the testing, the difficulty, the trials that you will face are actually going to build this very sturdiness that we're talking about inside of you. You want to be intrepid? You want to be unflinching? You're like, yes, I, I, I want that, Eric. Well, then... Are you willing to get it God's way? This is how you get it. We want it the cheater's way. We want God to just sort of slip it in when we're sleeping. You know, just like, hey, God, can you just sort of slip it in? I'll wake up and I'll be like brave and courageous and I'll do everything you ask without flinching. He says, I need to build you a certain way. It's like gold is only refined through fire. You can't just take a chunk of gold and say, God, could you please refine this? It's like, yeah, put it in the fire. But God, could we refine it without the fire? No, because that's how gold is refined. And we are that gold. And God is desiring to refine us. He's desiring to make us that pure uh, finish. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Oh. The calm and courage of the Christian, built to do hard things as if they weren't really hard. See, as you mature as a Christian, your assignment is going to get heavier and heavier. And many of you in here are unmarried, but what you'll find is that as you progress in life, you'll look back. Like right now, uh, you look at certain trials you're going through, and they are so difficult. But 10 years from now, you'll look back at this season and go, wow, that is so easy compared to the weights I carry now. However, you will also have matured to carry those weights if that makes sense. Like, when, when I didn't have any kids, my life was extremely challenging. I had weights that I remember looking around at other people my age that graduated at the same time I did. It was like, they have no idea how much I carry. Well, what I carry now is a hundred times what I was carrying then. And if I had looked towards Eric Ludy the way I am now, it would have crushed me to think of trying to carry this. However, it just sort of feels about the same as it did back then <laughs> for me. The, my illustration for that is skiing. When you first put skis on, how many of you have, have uh, skied? Okay, so uh, quite a few of you. When you first ski and you stick on these skis, now it could be a snowboard, but we're going to talk skis. I've never actually snowboarded. I've been, uh, uh, so I've always skied. And you, you first get on those skis, you do not feel very comfortable. Let's just put it that way. Whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, these things slide. And so you, at first, you're just trying to gain balance. And then you test it. They have a little bunny hill. It's about as high as I am now from the ground. And by the way, when you first get on skis and you're that high, that's a big deal. And so then you go down the hill and you're like, whoa, 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 and you fall off to the side. Okay, it, it, literally, you just went about two feet uh, down. And it is, it is rather intimidating because you have no control 
right? Just like a little child, when they're learning to walk, it's called a toddle. You do not have the physiological balance for what is taking place, and as a result, you feel out of control, and it's hard. And yet, when you learn to ski, after you've skied for a weekend, you come for a couple days, you look back at yourself when you were just doing your little bunny hill, and it's embarrassing to think. You you should have seen me when I was learning to ski. I was 10 or 11. It's one of the most embarrassing days of my life because my parents hadn't had a ski when we were young, so now my mom wanted to get us into skiing because we lived in Colorado, uh, and so we should know how to ski. So we go, and they had, like, this ski school that my mom signed us up for. Now, it was worse for my sister because she was two years older than me, but we had to wear balloons on our head so that the ski instructors knew where all their students were. So my sister was like 13, I'm like 11, my brother's like nine. We're the three oldest, and then there's like seven, six, five, all these little kids in there. And I still remember at lunch, we had this bowl of uh, chocolate pudding and I was, I like chocolate pudding. And, but then this little kid sticks his hand in the middle of it and licks his uh, hand. And that was, I didn't even eat that chocolate pudding that day. That was my memories of learning to ski, by the way. So uh, I just, I figured I'd throw that in for you. But I had to wear a balloon when I was going down that little hill. So it was even worse for me. So if you think it was hard for you, just imagine wearing a balloon on your head when you were doing it. So then the first time you, you go up uh, the lift, the ski lift, I don't know if you guys remember that moment, but being, being caught up in a ski lift the first time to start with is a big deal because it's a little scary. And then getting off the ski lift, the whole while you're going up, it's like, how do you get off this thing? <laughs> and so it's like, oh, well, when you get to the top, you just sort of get off. Yeah, but how does that work? Well, you'll find out real quick. And when that, it pushes you, it sort of gives you a nudge. And then uh, if you don't get off quick enough, it hits you again on the, on the way around. And most people don't survive their first getting off of a ski lift. You end up in a heap off to the side somewhere. It's, it's a very unique thing uh, to go through. When you go down your first green, so now you've, you've learned how to you know, go around in your bunny hill and things. You go down your first green, it is a little terrifying. Uh, and, and so, but it's a green. It's, I mean, it's, it's a very light slope, but it is rather challenging. But when, you've been, when you spend an entire day on that green, by the time you're done, you're thinking, this is ridiculously easy. Okay? It just takes familiarity. It's an acclimation process. Then when you go to your first blue, it's terrifying. Blue is the next level up. So it's a little steeper. And then sometimes they throw in these moguls and these little obstacles, and it's like, whoa, how, oh! And so there's a lot of crashing when you're first getting going. But when you master the blue level, blacks then are what you just have to do, and... They're terrifying. I mean, they, you've never seen something so steep. Even when you're coming up to the edge of the, the slope, it looks like it's a cliff to you. I mean, it looks like it drops straight down. And that's not an exaggeration. It looks that way. It's like a feeling. And so when you first go down your first black, I mean, you're just surviving. It is like so intense. Now, if you've ever done a black, well, then you see a double black, a double black diamond? Well, how about jumping out of a helicopter onto a double black diamond? In other words, there's varying degrees of difficulty here. And if you're jumping out of helicopters onto double black diamonds, how do you think that contrasts with your bunny hill in the very beginning? And yet, when you are familiar with the territory, it's just as hard internally for a person for the first time to jump out of that helicopter as it is for someone to go down that bunny hill in the beginning. 
It's, it's a weird thing, but we are growing up and maturing in what we can handle. And so even though on paper it looks like they're extreme opposites and, and completely separate from each other, the same is true with your development as a Christian. Right now there are certain things that you can't even imagine doing. But in the future, you will be doing them without even thinking about it. Because you are maturing, and as you continue to exercise your soul, you will be doing blues. You will be doing blacks. You will be doing blacks with intense moguls. You'll be doing double blacks. And you know, I'm not going to say that some of you are going to be jumping out of helicopters under double black diamonds, uh, but you may. In other words, you're being built for that. And now, this, this screen here that I have up, it says, the calm and courage of the Christian built to do hard things as if they weren't really hard. You see, you're going to forget that they're hard, and you're just going to do them. Do you remember the sheep and the goats? The sheep are like, when did we do that? We don't remember doing that. It's an unconscious living. You don't live anymore to say, okay, I'm going to do hard things. You just do them, and you do them with joy, and you do them all the time, and you don't ponder the fact that they're difficult. You go over onto a mission field where someone is pouring out their life, and you just watch them in awe. It's like, whoa, I've never seen anyone do this. They're not even thinking about it. They just do it. They do it every day. And so it takes someone like you coming in and going, I've never seen this before. Back where I come from, someone would die in one day trying to live like this. That's because they're not tempered. They're not acclimated to that form of living. They do not have tensile strength and resilience. As a result, they've never cultivated patience. They've never cultivated that strength of soul that doesn't flinch in the face of challenge. When you do well and suffer for it, and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So what we see is we have an example in Christ Jesus. To do what? To handle everything, all the difficulties we face in life, patiently. In other words, to handle them with patience so that we literally are unflinching, unmoved. We are stout-hearted in the midst of the most extreme difficulties. We have a smile that creases our face when things go dark because we know it's only strengthening us all the more. We relish it. Have you ever, and I, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but when you are well-prepared for a test, you smile at the test. I remember an organic chemistry test that I had studied really hard for. I'd had extra help for. And I finally, organic chemistry either kills you or, you know, you get it. It's one of those things. It's sort of like math where some people get it and some people just don't. And it's like the, the worst thing in their life. Organic chemistry is like a fine line. Uh, and I got it. It's like, I, I got this. I actually understand what this is. And then I was studied up and ready for the test. I wanted the test. I remember some of my other fellow peers were like, oh, no, I don't want to take that test. Oh, I just wish I didn't have to live tomorrow. You know, it was like so scary for them. It's just like, I want it. Give me the test. Why? Because I felt prepared for the test. When you feel prepared, it's weird. Even the hardest tests become opportunities. And I just want to welcome you into this zone of Christianity. This is why men and women can sing when they go into prison cells. It's not because they just 
naturally feel like, oh, you know, this is a pleasant environment, the cold, dank floor, the rat going across my foot, yeah, the, uh, the larva-infested uh, meal that I have. It's like that's not necessarily anything attractive to them, but they know that they're built for it. They know that God's grace is sufficient for that. So they anticipate what God is going to do. God is going to meet me here. God is here. And so a song comes out. So I don't know if you guys remember our little list uh, from the last go-around. We had the message shipwrecked. But remember the angel came in with his clipboard and he wanted a few people to sign up. I just want you to think about this from a different angle today. Same list, but from the level of patience and intrepid. Okay, this is the Elisha the Tishbite, totally surrounded. What are you totally surrounded with? You're totally surrounded by the difficulties, the challenges of your life. You're totally surrounded by horses and chariots of fire. You see, you're surrounded. You just need to choose which lens you're wearing. Are you wearing the earthly lens? You know, all hell is out to get you. You're doomed. There's no chance that you could possibly make it in this life. Sin is crouching at your door. We have all these you know, foreboding thoughts, or just stick on the right glasses, the heavenly glasses, and say, my God surrounds me as with a shield. He is armor about me. Hold up the shield of faith, and it repels all the fiery darts of the evil one. Stephen was stoned. Philip was crucified. Matthew was slain with the sword. James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned and clubbed. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Mark was dragged to pieces. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and then crucified. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. Luke was hung. Peter was crucified. And John was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil and removed unscathed and then exiled to Patmos. Whew. So there's the first 12. In other words, this is an extreme life that we've been called to, and yet we've been given an extreme remedy. We've been given extreme things to live this extreme life. Just because many of us have grown up in the North American culture and we haven't needed that extreme grace doesn't mean it's not there. So the question is, are you willing to go after God's way of living so that you can begin to realize God's sustenance for living that way? God will give you everything you need. The question is, are you willing to go into territory and begin to consider trials of many kinds joy, that not consider it strange when you face them? So I gave you this story a few days ago in a different message too. I think it was Sundays. Upside down, please the death of the apostle Peter. So Peter is being led to his death, and he actually chooses, in light of knowing he's going to be crucified, he chooses a more painful death, upside down. I mean, it's hard enough to be crucified upright, but to deliberately choose a more painful death, uh, we're, we're talking a level of insanity here, aren't we? You see, this is Christianity, not insanity. Some people mix the two up. But this is literally a heavenly mind towards living. God's grace is always sufficient when we obey, when we honor, when we show love. Jerome saith that he was crucified, speaking of Peter, his head being down and his feet upward, himself so requiring, because he was, he said, unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner as the Lord. I will not be silenced. This is the death of the apostle Andrew. So if you study... Uh, the history of martyrdom of, of the apostles. Uh, Andrew was crucified, but he was crucified. This is, he was the brother of Peter. He's crucified on a cross, two beams of wood shaped it as an axe. And so his symbol throughout history was an axe for Andrew. And so he was tied to it. Now what happened before that is interesting because the governor, and I want to pronounce his name like Agus, 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 uh, that actually 
put, brought him into his, I always picture it being an office, and sort of like uh, It's a Wonderful Life when uh, Potter has the Jimmy Stewart character in the little small chair. Similar to that, that's what's in my head. And the governor says, <clears throat> if you don't stop preaching about this Jesus and this cross, I'm going to crucify you on one too. So what, what do you do in such a moment? Okay, you're surrounded with the Syrian army here. I mean, this is a pretty intense thing to think about being crucified and being threatened by a government official who has the power and the authority to do it. What would you say in such a moment? You're sitting in your little smallest chair, big potter desk in front of you, and he has so much command and power. What are you going to say in that moment? This is what Andrew said. I would dare not have preached the glory of the cross of Christ if I was also not first willing to die upon it. Okay, think about that, guys. I would have not even preached the glory of the cross if I was first not willing to die upon a cross. That's an incredible statement. So I want us to just evaluate that in our own life. Do we recognize what we're preaching and what we're standing for? We're standing for something that has led to the death of many millions of Christians over the years because they believed in that cross and that Jesus. So Andrew understood, hey, I'm not even going to preach this until I'm willing to die. This is where it starts. I'm, my life does not belong to me. It's, it's God's. So the governor is rather upset over that response, immediately takes Andrew out to execute him and ties him to two beams of wood. Now, when you're tied to two beams of wood with your, you know, your legs sprawled like this, your arms you know, up in an X position, uh, you don't die immediately. It's a long form of torture. And in this type of death, like your bones are getting out of joint, you're having a difficult time breathing, but he was up there three days. So if you could imagine, but what did he do all three days? He preached to everyone that came and gawked. Everyone that came, he started preaching the gospel to them. And he was just sharing Jesus the whole time. So then, after he'd been there for an unduly long amount of time, I mean, three days is just like preposterous for everyone, even back in those days. So the saints, who didn't want to lose Andrew, went to the governor to plead for him to take him down. It's like, whatever he did wrong, he's paid his due. Just because he hasn't died doesn't mean you need to leave him there. You need to let him down. He's paid his time. So Andrew finds out that the saints are trying to get him down off that cross. He cries out to heaven. This is how, this is how Andrew departed the earth. Cries out to heaven. Oh, Jesus, I desire to be with you more than anything of this earth. Please. Let me come home, you know, that type of a quote. It's not the exact quote. And that's how he left. Is literally, he'd spent his time on this earth and he wanted to have his time in heaven. And that's how he departed. After three days, hearing rumor that they were trying to take him down. It's like, oh, no, wait a minute. Don't let them take me down. This is my opportunity. Audacious Ignatius. So Ignatius was, a, was the disciple of John the Apostle. So quite an interesting character here. Ignatius is a great study in and of itself. And Ignatius is told, he is in, informed that he is going to be fed to lions uh, the following morning. And you know what his response was? He rejoiced. And he said, my salvation has finally come. And you know what he referred to the lions as? His friends. The lions were his friends because they were the ones that were going to lead him into the presence of Jesus Christ. 
Okay, do you see a different form of thinking than we have? <laughs> if you were told you're going to be fed to lions, what goes into your head? Oh, pain. Oh, agony. My arm ripped off. What's that going to feel like? We're like thinking through the, the whole vantage point is us. Human suffering. We don't feel we can do it. And yet here's a man who has gone through so much suffering in his life, he's undaunted by suffering because he knows God is gracious in the midst of it. He knows that God is good. He knows that God is faithful. God has never departed from him. God will not uh, fail him now. So he's only thinking about what good is going to come out of it. That's where his entire mindset is. You see, he's totally surrounded by truth. You see, you have to be totally surrounded, but not by the Syrian army, not by the threats of danger and lions and crosses, but with Jesus. He is your strong tower. Flee to him for refuge. Be totally surrounded by him. So this is the martyrdom of Ignatius. Having come to Smyrna, he wrote to the church at Rome exhorting them not to use means for his deliverance from martyrdom. Don't, don't try and spare me, church lest they should deprive him of that which he longed and hoped for. Now I begin to be a disciple, says Ignatius. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only, I, only may I win Christ Jesus. And even when he was sentenced to be thrown to the beast, such as the burning desire that he had to suffer, that he spoke what time he heard the lions roaring, saying, I am the wheat of Christ. I am going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts, that I may be found purebred. Germanicus. So Germanicus, uh, I'm going to give you more of a, a, not a historical enunciation of Germanicus, but a mental picture that I have thanks to the movie Polycarp. Did you guys see the, the movie Polycarp? Someone came up to me uh, during, you know, after one of our services and said, I think you'd like this. And they gave me Polycarp. And there's a scene right at the end. So it, it's, they, the way they did the, the movie is they tied in Polycarp, who's another great character who died a martyr. Uh, and he brought, they brought in the other character who lived right in the same time period, Germanicus, into that story. And Germanicus was fed to wild beasts. That's how he died. And the way they... They show it is rather inspiring, I have to admit. It's, it stirred me. And so, I mean, it's, it's not a high-budget movie, right? So they don't have the ability to show wild beasts, you know, eating someone or surrounding someone even. They don't have the ability to show an arena uh, of people cheering. So, but they, they do it still well where you, you get the feeling. And so Germanicus, before this in the movie, actually... Distance himself, distances himself and spares his own life. In other words, in a sense, denies Christ so that he could live. So he's now carrying that weight. It's like, oh God, I can't, I can't live that way. I, I want to live for you. So Polycarp exhorts him. And now the real testing comes. And in the moment of testing, he basically chooses Christ even though it's going to cost him his life. In the very last scene of Germanicus is he is thrust into the arena and you hear the roar of the beasts and he smiles and then runs towards them. And that, <clears throat> that, it's the sprinting towards the beasts that stirs, stirs me. It just does. There's something about that. The smile, the recognition, it's like, praise God. This is my opportunity. I get to go home. 
If you knew what it meant to go home, to be with Christ, desiderio domini, oh, I dearly long to be with my Lord, then doesn't that just sound right, that we would smile at such a moment and then sprint to meet it? I mean, this is that long-lost family member that finally comes home from the war and you see them across the airport and you sprint and even scream and shout out their name at the same time. Why would you do that? I mean, you're going to look a fool. I mean, don't you realize that other people in the airport could see that? Who cares? Don't you know how important of a moment this is? Well, you want to get a capital I important moment. How about when you get to go home to be with Jesus? You follow it? This is historic Christianity. They understand it. They see it. And I think there's such a cloud and a dimness in our view today that we cower oftentimes even at the thought of such things as opposed to sprinting to meet it. You see, we don't have patience in our satchel. So as a result, we tend to be cowards when we think of the grand call of Christianity as opposed to saying, God, build me into such a man or a woman of God. Father, I just ask that you would do exactly that. That Elisha the Tishbite and that example that is seen throughout history in Peter, in Andrew, in Ignatius, but in basically every other Christian throughout the ages that has suffered for you well. Lord, I just pray that you would cultivate this within us, that you would build it and establish it in us, that we would learn to rejoice in our difficulties and embrace our difficulties as as if they are true and indeed our exercise equipment for the soul. Lord Jesus, we love you and submit to you today. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.